welcome everyone to part one of our brand new mini series from Some Like It Scott, The Nolan Countdown. After the success and fun we had with our Star Wars countdown last fall, Scott and I got together and asked ourselves how we could do this again. And for us, looking at the release calendar for this year, it really felt like a no-brainer. Tenet, the next movie from writer-director and blockbuster auteur Chris Nolan, is certainly one of the biggest releases of 2020. And so why not go back and see how his filmmaking style has progressed and evolved over the years by revisiting each one of his movies, starting with his first, 1998's Following, and ending with his latest, 2017's Dunkirk. So we hope you'll be joining us each week over the next 10 weeks for a different Nolan film. And we'll be starting today with, as I've mentioned already, his first film from 1998, Following. But before we get to that, with me each week, I'll have my co-host, Scott Harvey, and our returning guest from the Star Wars Countdown series, Jay Habib. Guys, how are you both doing today? I'm doing well, Scott. Um, I am feeling a little bit under the weather, uh, so I apologize if my uh, my dulcet tones aren't as strong as usual. Um, my voice isn't quite all there, uh, maybe also because we've been doing a lot of podcasting recently. But um, no, I'm looking forward to this series a lot. Um, there's two movies that I haven't seen of his, and actually this was one of them, so it's, it's down to one now. Interstellar is the only one that I haven't seen. Uh, but some of the movies in here are some of my all-time favorite movies, not to spoil anything, but... So I'm, I'm excited to, you know, rewatch them and get an opportunity to talk about them and maybe uh, rewatch some of the ones that I haven't seen in a while as well. So obviously, obviously, Nolan is a great target for this sort of countdown series. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nolan's one of the special directors where he, he really there's really no other way that I think to describe him other than an auteur. But he's such a different kind of auteur than you think about when you think of film. Usually when you think of auteurs in film, you think of someone like a Wes Anderson or even a Quentin Tarantino who have a very... Um, indie kind of style to the way that they make their films but chris nolan's movies are are anything but indie i mean he's one of the few if not the only you know writer director and independent filmmaker who can command a budget of i mean for tenant coming out later this year 200 million dollars plus and i mean even tarantino can't even get half that to make his movies uh, not that tarantino needs that much money to make his movies but it just goes to show that you know the broad line appeal of someone who is doing usually some very interesting things with this film over the, you know, you've seen, you said eight, eight of the 10, I've seen a fewer, fewer than that. I think I've seen six, maybe seven of them. I have a couple holes as well. Uh, this was one of them. I think this was one of them for, for all three of us here, but it's going to be really interesting to go back and I think watch them in the progression of it uh, over the years as well. I think it's another dimension that I, I hope, well, I hope will be a recurring theme on the podcast over you know the next nine ten weeks uh, is talk talking about how you know there was this one thing that happened in this one movie and how it translates uh, into the next movie because I've, I've already felt myself doing that uh, thinking about following things like that because you know when I watched Nolan's films the first for the first time around for the ones that I've seen they're not in order I mean the dark I mean the the Dark Knight movies are in order just because they are a trilogy uh, but otherwise they're kind of very disparate here and there. Um, and not always thinking about his other movies, like it, them in the context of his other movies. So I'm really excited to do that. All right, Jay, how are you doing? Hey, Scott. Uh, I'm doing really well. And just to echo Scott Harvey, I'm also really excited to be here. Uh, Christopher Nolan is probably my favorite director. And I've seen uh, every movie we're going to talk about multiple times, except this one. Um, and not to spoil anything either, but some of those movies are some of my favorite movies of all time. So really excited to dive in and dissect those and like you said, just kind of watch the progression of Christopher Nolan 
Yeah. Now, I mean, I think we're all in the same boat of what, whether they're the same movies, I don't know, but uh, we all have uh, some movies that I think are on our top, 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 uh, you know, top movies of all time list uh, coming out of Chris uh, Nolan's oeuvre, as uh, Scott likes to say sometimes on the podcast. And with that, why not go ahead and dive into the one movie that none of us had seen in Chris Nolan's filmography. Um, and, and maybe for that reason, it might even inspire some of the most interesting conversations that we'll have on the podcast. And that is his 1998 debut following. Um, and, you know, talking about debuts, a lot of times, you know, filmmakers' debuts are often received with, with little fanfare because, you know, there are some small uh, independent production done and maybe, maybe while they were in college or something like that. And uh, it's hard to say that Chris Nolan's movie was exactly like that, but it, it was similar in that this thing was made on an astoundingly low budget of only $6,000. It was his writing and directing debut. He did he did both write and direct this one. It's shot in black and white. It's a neo-noir crime thriller and comes in shockingly for Chris Nolan by the end of the series at uh, less than 70 minutes in length, which is an absurdity uh, for Chris Nolan since I think all of his movies are two to three times that length. Okay, three times is an exaggeration, but at least twice that length it feels like. It stars Jeremy Theobald as the young man. That's that's the credit that he's given at the end of the film. Uh, it's, he uses several names. I think Bill is, is one of them. I think there's another one as well uh, that he goes by over the course of the film. But he's an unemployed young writer who has decided to follow strangers around London in search of inspiration for his writing. Early on, uh, when he's following these, these different strangers around, he sets strict rules for himself related to whom he follows and for how long, but he doesn't follow them. Uh, he doesn't follow those rules for very long and soon is confronted by one of his followees, played by Alex Hall, who introduces himself as Cobb, a serial burglar who allegedly only steals for the thrill. Cobb takes the young man under his wing on several of his escapades, and the young man soon starts exploring targets of his own. In what is now almost considered a staple in Chris Nolan films, following unfolds in a non-linear format, creating suspense around the characters of both the young man and Cobb, as well as the young man's eventual burglary target turned romantic interest known simply as the blonde, played by Lucy Russell. I will stop there to uh, avoid any spoilers uh, for now, but Jay, let's start with you. What did you think of Chris Nolan's debut? I think if you uh, had told me, if you hadn't told me rather that this was a Christopher Nolan movie, I might've been able to at least draw some similarities. Um, kind of like you said, you know, the nonlinear progression um, and, you know, just the way it kind of played out some of the themes, like it did feel so Nolan-esque. I mean, and for that reason, you know, I did really enjoy it. Um, you know, especially, you know, again, like just thinking of it in that vein of like, you know, this is from so long ago, but it's still his and seeing the things that I would tie to movies that he would eventually make and themes that he would, I would tie to movies that he'd eventually make. Um, but even just as a standalone, like, you know, I, you know, you can kind of tell like it's low budget. Sure. But, you know, I had a, I had a pretty fun time again, just, you know, it, it was, it was like odd, like in that it, it, I felt like it paced a little strangely, but it was still gripping nonetheless. And I had a fun time with it. Yeah, I, I mean, you talk about kind of being able to tell it was shot on a low budget. I mean, for me, it's it's very obvious that it's shot on a low budget, and and that's not necessarily in, in a bad way. I just think it's it's very clear uh, the there's a there's a tightness and a I don't know precise nature, and it seems like a, an intentional nature in like everything that this movie does. Some of some of it works well, 
we can talk about maybe some parts that don't work as well, but everything feels super neutral. The, the only hit that I would say on, on the low production budget that is clear is the audio design is like not very good in this film. Like I, I actually, I think probably the worst part of the film for me, but I totally hear what you're saying. And Scott, we'll jump over to you before I give any more of my thoughts. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you, what you guys are saying about you can definitely, I mean, it's, it's an interesting movie to look at as the beginning of this guy's career after you've seen a lot of the other movies um, and, and see maybe some of the ideas that he's been developing from the very beginning that he later fleshed out more uh, in other movies. Time, just the concept of time being, of course, maybe the most prominent theme of Nolan's film and, and being an element of this uh, film as well. I, I didn't love the movie, though. I, I think that the budget um, did hurt it a little bit for me. You know, you talk about the sound design um, being rough. The editing, I think, is actually quite bad. Um, I, I think it... It really hurts. I I I think that the nonlinear storytelling actually, to me, doesn't really make sense. We could talk about a little bit more why that is. I don't, I don't think it makes sense in the context of this film, and it can be a little confusing. And especially when you, um, you know, combine that with the the, the quite poor editing, I felt um, it was it was sometimes hard to know when in time we were, what was going on. Um, and, and not not in the good sort of disorienting way that that some of Nolan's other movies were. I just felt like um, he he wasn't quite in control like he is in other movies. Um, and so, I mean, I try to be open minded about movies with low budgets. I mean, the Blair Witch Project is one of my all time favorite movies. Um, that was made for like fifty thousand compared to this six thousand uh, that this movie was made for. But still, I think that. There are there are ways to effectively make a, a movie with shoestring budgets, and I think Nolan flirts with some interesting ideas, particularly in the beginning of the movie. I, I got some Hitchcock vibes from sort of the uh, psychological ideas that he was that that it seemed like he was introducing at the start of the movie. But I felt like rather than explore the human psyche in the way that Hitchcock did with some of his movies, he kind of just settled for a straightforward thriller with you know so a few a few twists in there. You'd expect that from a from a Nolan movie, some of which maybe work better than others. But yeah, I mean, again, I think this is interesting. I'm glad I watched it. Uh, it's interesting to, to see how it paved the way for Nolan's future films. But uh, I think in terms when when whenever we get to our rankings, I think this one is probably gonna be towards the bottom, if not at the bottom. I think he, it's just left me with question, too many questions and not in the good way that that some of Nolan's films do. Yeah, I, I think I understand where you're coming from in some parts. I, I may we'll we'll discuss it more later, and, and I think that I, I don't entirely uh, agree on all fronts about the timeline necessarily being so confusing over the course of the full runtime of the film. Uh, but we can get to that late, later on because I do I do want to talk about. I mean, that's one of the main things I think that I do want to talk about. So, to, but to start, I think the movie you talk about bang for your buck. I mean, if you, it's always ultimately it's impossible to entirely attribute things to budget. You know, whether something being low budget or something having, you know, budget to spare, but absolutely. I mean, when you have a $6,000 budget and, you know, literally paying for the film stock, you know, the 16 millimeter black and white film stock out of pocket, that is a serious limitation that nine, you know, 90% of filmmakers, uh, at least ones that get their films actually, you know, uh, distributed would, would never face, right? Cause studios are going to back films and even independent made films these days usually have sponsors that would get those movies. Now, those movies do exist out there. They're just not usually getting distributed. This happens to be a film that that found a distributor through, you know, festival showings, et cetera. I think it, I can't remember which festival it debuted at, but uh, maybe South by Southwest or Sunday. Actually, probably South by Southwest didn't exist 20 years ago. Uh, probably like Sundance or something like that. And finally, did get its distribution. And it's just one of those things that I think it's it's ultimately 
uh, when you go back and revisit the way that we have, I mean, we're it's impossible for us to, unlike the Star Wars countdown series, it's impossible for us not to uh, attribute this or connect this to other movies in Chris Nolan's um, filmography. And so I think because of that, maybe this movie gets a lift, actually. Not, not, not only is it relative, it may, maybe it is relatively one of his lesser films, but you think about his filmography and, and you know, from top to bottom almost, he's, he's creating, usually creating bangers. And I think that this movie is the foundation for a lot of the themes that, again, he continues to explore over his other nine films to date. And it seems that Tenet's going to be the same in terms of uh, exploring a different, a different from a different angle, the the concept of time and and how that works. And, and this one starts to introduce that. And, and one of the things that I found most compelling about following is is what it maybe meant for, uh, or, or what it made me think about for other movies. Uh, that he has made, and and again, maybe we can talk a little bit about that later, and, and certainly want to come back to following in future episodes when we talk about those particular movies. But it, I think it benefits for me from that because maybe if I didn't know this was Chris Nolan, or if I hadn't seen a Chris Nolan movie before, I would have been a little bit more lukewarm and had a little bit less to think about in the in the grand scheme of things about this about this movie. Because you know, in some ways, this is just this is his test footage. You know, when you talk about. You know, I mean, this kind of this will date us a little bit in terms of when we're actually recording this podcast relative to when it's releasing. But the other day, you know, the three of us talked about the Batman test footage, and in some ways, this this feels like a seventy-minute test footage for the kind of movie that Chris Nolan, you know, wants to make, uh, but on his own budget. And there's some good elements to that, absolutely. I think that you can you can see the foundations of the types of stories that he likes to tell, uh, the twists that you talked about, Scott, um, kind of the the atmosphere of the film, even though it's in black and white, and I. Don't think any of the other films are shot in black and white, uh, unless one of the ones that I haven't seen is shot in black and white. Um, but it, it's there. I think the bones of, of Chris Nolan are there, and you can see that. Uh, but because we've all seen his other movies, we see the other movies in there as well. And so it benefits from that nature. But with that, I think jumping into the cast a little bit, I talked about uh, the three kind of main players in the cast. I mean, there are a few other people who get billings uh, in the movie, but the three main hitters are Jeremy Theobald, who plays... Uh, the young man, Alex Haw, who plays Cobb, and Lucy Russell, who plays the blonde. And Scott, we'll start with you this time. In terms of the performances here, is is there one in particular that stands out? I mean, I guess I would have to say that Alex Haw's performance as Cobb, probably the strongest personality here. Again, I don't think any of these performances are up to par with a lot of the performances in in Christopher Nolan movies. I mean, there's some quite good ones that we'll we'll get to, particularly in the next movie. I think there's some good performances, but um, I think that um, Jeremy Theobald. I don't know. Like, it didn't surprise me to learn that he hasn't been, really been in many movies since this. I, I think there was just no sort of charisma uh, from his performance. I found him very bland. He needs to enunciate more when he talks, I think. Like there there are just some times when he's just kind of talking out of the side of his mouth like this for the entire time. And I, I like I understand he's supposed to be this sort of like antisocial recluse in a way, but I, I don't know. It it didn't make for a great viewing experience. And I, I, I don't it was hard for me to to figure out where where is he playing the character and where is just maybe some of his deficiencies as an actor coming through. But I do think that Alex Hall has some good moments, I think the first scene where he meets um, the young man when the young man is following him. Um, he immediately cut, you know, he's a strong personality from the beginning. Um, he calls out the young man for following him. Um, and I think 
it, it is somewhat believable that a guy like the young man would get sucked into the orbit of this Cobb character and, um, you know, his life of petty crime, sort of breaking and breaking and entering and stealing things, not really to steal things from people's houses, but just just sort of letting people know that they were there um, type of thing. I, I think that that is an inter interesting performance. And like I said, I, I believed that um, that Jeremy Theobald's character would go down uh, this path with um, with the uh, with Cobb. Um, also, of course, it's significant that his name is Cobb, which is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Inception. Uh, we could probably talk more about that when we get to Inception, maybe, um, and whether there's uh, a reason why um, Nolan chose to reuse this name, you know, some 12 years later. I mean, I'm sure there is, um, but well, we can talk about that later. Um, Lucy Russell, I think, is fine. Um, I, I think that, I mean, I, I don't want to get into too many spoilers, but there's there's some ambiguity going on with this character that I don't know. I, I don't know if she hides it very well from the from the beginning. I think I always thought there were multiple sides to this character. Um, and I mean, it's, it wasn't really a surprise to me. Um, it wasn't really much of a twist to me to learn out that, learn later that there were multiple sides to this character just because of the way that she plays it. But I mean, I think she leaves a decent impression with her performance. Unfortunately, not too much to disagree with Scott on here. Yeah, Alex Hotomy, I think, you know, is the standout. Uh, I think of the scene when he takes Jeremy Theobald on their first break-in and he asks, you know, oh, like, you know, where does this man work? Uh, and then, you know, quickly calls him out and says, like, you know, like, he's a student. Like, how could you not realize this? And, you know, I I, I found that scene, uh, as well as, you know, the one you're talking about uh, at the, I guess, coffee shop or restaurant where he first introduces himself to be his more magnetic moments. Uh, Jeremy Theobald is fine uh, between, you know, the audio, the lack of great audio that you've already mentioned and uh, him kind of talking out of the corner of his mouth. I actually ended up watching this movie with subtitles, which I generally try not to do um, for some reason or another. But uh, yeah, I threw on subtitles because I, I felt like I just needed it to make sure I was getting everything. And yeah, I mean, you know, he yeah, I didn't I didn't find him particularly moving or uh, enticing, you know, even when he finds out that he's been. Uh, betrayed by the blonde or I guess lied to about the photos and whatnot, you know, when he like confronts her, like, you know, aside from like the initial slap, there isn't really much there. Uh, like I, I wasn't, I was just kind of bored when, you know, he's like, you know, has her like against the wall. And I was like, why would you do this to me or to anybody? And I'm, I'm sitting there like this was very blandly delivered. Yeah. I, I had a hard time kind of processing Jeremy Theobald's performance. Cause part of me does feel like this, this character requires a very meek, performance. I mean, he has to kind of be uh, submissive to Cobb and I think almost you know everyone in his life around him. I mean, he, he so seeks the approval of Cobb over the course of the film that he, he has to he has to be in that way. And I almost view the scene that you're talking about, Jay, as him, you know, trying to be like Cobb when he does that. But it, I agree that it, it doesn't really come off right. And there's just something off about the performance. And I just couldn't tell uh, if, if it was intentional. Or not in that way. I, I think ultimately it probably comes down in somewhere in the middle for me. Maybe I'm a, a little bit less negative, but I'm certainly not positive on the performance. As for Alex Ho, I think the reason that his performance stands out, and I think it does, is because he's given this sort of dominant, like domineering performance that he he's meant to own the screen when he's on it. He's meant to be the one who has all the answers um, and is this quick, clever, intelligent guy who is doing this life of petty crime the way that you describe it, Scott. But at the same time, uh, he feels like he's being like he's being driven by some like higher purpose or higher meaning that he's given to his own life. And 
in terms of magnetism and charisma that you that we feel like Jeremy Theobald's performance and the young man lacks. I mean, you, you find all of that in Cobb. And I think that there's never a, a scene in the film where you don't feel like Cobb is in control of everything that's happening on the screen. And I think Alex Haw uh, portrays that really well. I think that some of the production elements of the film uh, also portray that really well because it, it feels like in those scenes, to me, the camera gravitated as well towards towards Cobb uh, and, and, and toward his actions on the screen. Jay, I mean, you, you mentioned the the first, I mean, I guess it's technically the second break in they go on together because the first one they kind of get they get they get caught or whatever in the well caught in quotation marks in the act there but their first like planned uh burglary the one that that the young man actually plans it ends up of course being to the young man's own apartment right and, and you know he uses himself in his own apartment as a as a mark or a target and you have this scene where again he's trying to it, it, again it's it, it's almost maybe hard to piece apart but for me i took it as he's trying to gain the approval and understand how Cobb perceives himself. But really there's this, you know, this larger thing that's going on that kind of unfurls over the course of the whole movie for me. And and Scott, you mentioned kind of the three different performances. You maybe Jeremy Theobald is a disappointing performance. Alex Haw is a is maybe the standout performance if, if that is the right way to describe it for this film. But then Lucy Russell in this sort of forgettable uh, performance. And I think that ultimately that that's what it is. You, you talk about you know some of the best performances in the best movies. You can't think of anyone else who could play that role. I feel like I could think of twenty people who could have pl- who could have played that role. I just think just about anyone uh, could have been plugged in into that performance and, and given roughly the same performance. It's not a bad performance and it's not a standout performance. And the fact that uh, she and, and Jeremy Theobald haven't done too much else uh, in movies uh, may- maybe speaks to a, a larger recurring theme and the performance that they have given over the course of their careers. And I just don't know if I have much more to add about the blondes uh, character at the moment, because I do think that that jumps in to some spoilers. And I think we can start to edge a little bit closer towards those spoilers now. I'd love to dive in now to the plot, talk about the story. <coughs> I don't know if it makes sense to talk about the way the, stor- the story is is kind of un- unfurling first in that nonlinear format, or if you want to talk about the actual events. Scott, uh, I'll leave it up to you. Where do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just talk about the nonlinear storytelling since I did mention it earlier. Yep. I, I don't think that it makes a lot of sense in the context of this movie, like I said earlier. I think that the only effect that it, it could potentially have is building suspense, I guess. Like, like uh, since there is some confusion about what you're seeing at times, like one one, uh, one scene in particular, I guess, is when he, he breaks in to try and steal the photos back. Um, and he encounters someone and there's a fight that we never really see. I, I don't think. And uh, you know, he ends up like injuring the other person. Uh, and when, when, when you're first introduced to that scene, I was sort of very sort of confused about what's going on. Um, but I think that in, in other movies, right, where Nolan utilizes this technique, there's, it, it makes sense in the context of the story, right? Like with Memento, we have a, a person who has, um, short-term memory loss. So it makes sense, like, right? Like he's telling the story in this particular way because that is the character's perception. In Insomnia, right? He plays with time as well. And the fact the sun never goes down uh, really in, in this uh, Alaska uh, town where the, the movie takes place. Um, in Inception, we're talking about like, tr- you know, dreams. And it, again, it makes sense to sort of play around with time a little bit. And I, I don't feel like there was necessarily the the need to do so in this film, you know, again, other than maybe to build suspense. And, and in the end, I don't know that it really did build suspense just because I think the film is so short 
that I don't know that it really has time to seek it to, to that it really has time to do this type of technique and really um, sink its teeth into you. Um, and, and so I, I don't know, I, I felt that it didn't really work for me, certainly not as well as it does in, in other of Nolan's movies. Jay, what did you think of the storytelling format? I think Scott, uh, Harvey, your, your critique is fair. Um, thinking about it now, I mean, yeah, this movie utilizes what, I guess three, maybe four, four timelines, three timelines. I, I guess like to your point, you know, it doesn't make sense so much. Like, you know, there, it doesn't feel like there's a real reason to it other than I guess he's just, you know, doing it to like, just to do it. I feel like this is something that probably feels better or at least a little more, I don't know, clever or thought out on a second or third rewatching. Um, you know, just to speak to another movie without spoiling it, like Memento is a movie that, you know, after I've told someone to watch it and they do, I encourage them to go back and watch it again, you know, knowing the full story. And I think, you know, to your point, I think I was more comfortable with the time jumps and kind of piecing it together more easily after like the first half of the movie. So to your point, I guess, I guess it didn't work super well, but you know, just to uh, rehash my point from earlier about, you know, seeing this as like, you know, baby Nolan is what I'm going to call it now. Uh, you know, that was, it was fun at least, you know, see him like try. Yeah. I, I agree that there, it, the storytelling hook of this, the, the multiple timelines um, in, in non-linear storytelling is, doesn't serve a purpose beyond building that tension and suspense. I, I would agree with that. At the same time, I guess I found it a little bit less confusing than in terms of how to follow, like in terms of following it. I think that, I mean, the, the three different timelines, you have essentially three different aesthetics for, you know, for the young man. One of them, he's, you know, kind of disheveled. He looks like the unemployed writer that he is. The second timeline, he looks, you know, a little bit more fancy. He has, he wears the suit, he's clean shaven, has shorter hair. And then the third one, he's, you know, beaten up and bruised. Uh, coming talking about from from the fight that he, uh, he he gets into or during that during that robbery I believe it is or I, I could be you know oh no 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 sorry the fight that he gets in with Cobb uh, at the end of the, like the second timeline uh, there that that's what that's what the uh, the bruises are from and for me it did take me a little bit of time probably took me like ten or fifteen minutes to understand uh, the different the different timelines but after that I felt like I, I got it and I was with it and I was following it fairly quickly but now if, if you go back and you ask me all right. You know, what did you benefit from having uh, the story being told in that nonlinear fashion? I'm not sure that it, it does benefit anything in terms of building suspense. I think that I think you could create an argument where it builds tension for the relationships between these people. Uh, it builds tension around like, oh, like you have this this phone call with Cobb where claim, like things are clearly um, very tense between the two of them earlier on in the movie in one of the timelines. But obviously in other timelines, it seems like they are getting along really well, et cetera. And I think that um, I think that you have to kind of process all those things. And yeah, Jay, good point. There, there actually is a fourth timeline. He, he is like retelling the whole story. If anything, that's like the, the present, right? Where he's like retelling the whole story in a nonlinear uh, fashion. But um, I guess I didn't really think of that as a timeline. But that's a good point. There is that fourth uh, out, I don't know, perspective there but anyway I, I think that in terms of it being difficult to follow you know i got up to speed with it fairly quickly but again I, i'd agree with your point scott and jay that ultimately it, it served 
little purpose beyond building tension, which I think it does at times effectively do about the tension between the relationship between, uh, we know something bad happened between the young man and Cobb. Um, you know, we are wary of this relationship between the blonde and the young man. Um, and so it builds tension for those relationships in that way. But ultimately, was it necessary? You know, may maybe not. Yeah, I mean, I, I understood everything by the end. I just think that yeah. for me, it was just kind of an artificial, artificially constructed way for him to just introduce these sort of like gotcha moments in there. Like, oh, look, he here's the twist. Cobb and the, the blonde or whatever were having a relationship the whole time. And I think I, I would have just appreciated a more straightforward telling of the story, especially with how short the movie is. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the I'm just trying to construct some sort of like counter to that, and and you know, because that because the thing that you're talking about still happens, I suppose, at the end of the movie. I guess it would have been about like the halfway point or whatever, because the one of the scenes that you get with them is is earlier on in in you know the timeline, so to speak. So I guess it does build tension in that way. But yeah, I don't know. M maybe it wasn't worth it, and I'm, I'm sure we'll have a lot more to add about the nonlinear format of a movie like Memento. Um, I mean, even Batman Begins, Dunkirk. Um, interstellar as well like they, they all kind of play with different types of nonlinear stories it's never it's never really you know one and the same here because yes this is nonlinear but it's really linear across like three timelines right yes there's the fourth telling you know retrospective point but to compare it to little women it's essentially just taking three starting points and running the story forward from each of those starting points uh, moving moving on from that I think that you know we've talked about the way the story is told but Another element is the story itself. And we started to tease about certain sports and mention some things that happen later on in the movie, whether they, you know, different places in the timeline, of course, but later on in the, in the running of the film. So why don't we, you know, say full spoilers here. If you haven't seen uh, following yet and you're interested in watching this one, uh, go watch it, come back, listen to the rest of it now. Uh, but Scott, Jay, um, I'll let you guys duke out for who wants to talk about, you know, the, the story first, but what did you guys think of the story as a whole? I mean, it, it made sense and it was, you know, interesting enough. Uh, I think, you know, like as a concept, you know, the, I, I mean, you know, the whole like sneaking around, like now is, you know, not only for them, but also for us, right? Like, you know, like you feel like, okay, like what's going to happen now? Is someone going to walk in? Like, what are they going to take? Like all the, you know, to me, it was the sense of, you know, like what chaotic thing potentially could happen next. And for that, you know, I, I thought it worked. And then, then of course, you know, just to go full spoiler here, you know, like ending the movie with a, I guess a double double cross or a triple cross. I'm not even exactly sure how to frame that. Um, you know, felt very Nolan-esque, and you know the the last twist actually like you know got me. And I was like, all right, like you know, like like well done, Nolan. You know, like that was a uh, I don't want to say shook me because I didn't you know I wasn't like emotionally distraught, but it was more like a oh wow, like wasn't wasn't prepared for that. I think that that twist, yeah, the the the, the reveal that Cobb is also sort of double crossing the blonde. It it surprised me. I mean, like I didn't see that coming. Now I would want to go back and rewatch it probably to feel, to, to decide whether I think the movie really earns that twist, right? Whether, whether you could figure out that twist from the movie, because if it's just kind of out of left field, then I don't know how, really how effective it is. Uh, but I think the, the bigger problem I had with the story is that, like I was saying up top, I think it, it introduces some interesting ideas and to, to kind of bring in the Hitchcock comparison again, like some of what, what made some of Hitchcock's best movies, so great were are the ways that he explores like the human psyche like in um strangers on a train for example like the idea that these two strangers meet and they 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 have someone in their life that uh they want 
killed off, that it would just be easier if this person was murdered. Um, and it, it makes you think about that. And, and I mean, Rear Window is another example. And, and Jimmy Stewart's character staring at, peering in through the windows. Um, it, it, it makes you confront maybe darker parts of yourselves and ask, you know, am I actually the same way? Like if I was in this position, would I, would I, do I feel the same way uh, as these characters? I think that's what Hitchcock could do so effectively. And I think that there's the potential to explore that here. I don't know that they really get into that. Like the idea, just the concept of someone who spends their time following other people around and like, what, Number one, why do they do that? Number two, is that impulse in in, in more people than maybe people would like to admit? Um, and even even Cobb's whole philosophy with why he um, why he steals from people, or I mean, he he's not really that interested in in taking things. You know, there's there's one interesting scene that I thought where they break into like a person who is not not very affluent apartment and um, are looking through things and Cobb basically once he once he figures out that the person doesn't really have very many valuable things um, kind of gets angry and says this is not really the type of person that we need we should be stealing from that we should um, you know be, be be breaking into their home that I mean it, that and that that kind of hints at some greater philosophy again that I don't think that they really fully explored in terms of w why does he do what he does and isn't that the young man's apartment that you're talking about I think so. Well, there you go. See, I didn't even I didn't even pick up on that. E even if it is the young man's apartment, I think that again, Cobb's mentality and seeing the apartment because he doesn't know it's the young man's apartment. I think he does know it's the young man's apartment. I think that's All part right, of the because even following him, yeah, you, I think I'm this done. one went by you to to at least talk to the point about whether the movie addresses you know why why Jeremy is you know following shoot Alex Hall. Thank you, um, and you know like what his motivate. I think to me at least the movie kind of did take a stance. A somewhat lackluster one but to me it was just you know oh like you know he is just you know kind of a peeper um you know when uh Alex Haw is talking to the blonde you know and basically you know is you know kind of laughing about it like to me that was kind of the moment where it was like yeah like you know there's there's nothing you know truly profound about why he started following in the first place right like it's just you know it's this it kind of plays into you know you're like the you're like the the recluse who really who you know who wants to be like baited or wants to be fooled, you know. To drop that line from a later Christopher Nolan movie, uh, to me at least, you know that that's where the movie took that. I will agree that you know they didn't do too much else with, you know, the philosophy behind why you know behind like Alex Hawes like stealing, right? Yeah, I, I mean they they try to push. I think they try to push part of it as uh, and and this kind of like little tagline that they they give Alex Hawes character again. A lot of this feels ultimately artificial because we know by the end that this is all just a setup. This is all just a setup uh, to make the young man or, or essentially have the young man take the fall for a lot of these you know things that, that Cobb himself has done. But this philosophy that he kind of espouses in the first break-in that he takes the young man on is this, you know, what what I what I the reason that I burgle people, the reason I break into places is that I take things to show people what they have and then make them appreciate what they had now that they no longer have it. Um, and I think that's an interesting philosophy that goes relatively uh, underexplored. I tried to kind of transpose that philosophy onto the larger con of what Cobb is doing, because I think that's that's the only thing I could assume that the movie wanted you to do by giving that, especially by the end when you learn that Cobb is conning both the young man and maybe also the blonde too, and try to apply whether that, whether that kind of philosophy also might apply to what he's doing to them. 
and I couldn't really come up with anything to get out of it, Scott. And and you know, even if maybe this whole idea that the whole time Cobb knew that it was his apartment, knew that you know what he was, I mean, all these things that he was doing. I think even even with maybe that that passing you by, I think that the points that you're making around the themes of the movie going ultimately underexplored is still really true. I think that there is a lot missing here, and you know, one of the things that I think that I this movie might potentially be trying to drop at the end of the film is kind of also questioning reality around, you know, what is real, what's not real in the young man's mind. And I think that part of that ties into the allusions to Inception uh, later on, which is of course kind of reversed because Inception was made 12 years after this movie. But I think there's some connections there that made me question around and think about it, you know, is Nolan maybe trying to also uh, question what is reality uh, for this guy as well, because at the end, you know, when he's talking uh, to the to the police officer, he is trying you know, trying to say all these things that have happened, but in reality, um, there's no proof that any of that happened. So, what is it actually defined by reality? Is another thread that maybe I read into what was going on a little bit more than I otherwise would have, of course, without the allusions to Inception, which again is a movie that was made over a decade after this film was made. Uh, but it, I couldn't help but think about those things as well. Another question I had, and again, maybe there's an answer to this that I just completely missed, but mm-hmm. um, why does he keep all of the things that he steals from the people's other people's apartments, right? Because that's one of the the things which ends up incriminating him in the end is the fact that he has this box. You know, everyone has a box is another idea that is like, okay, I want I wanted more of that. And that's, uh, you know, the fact that he has... Um, all of these belongings from other people's apartments and particularly from the blondes place um, is what ultimately ends up kind of doing him in. And I just wondered why did he keep all of those things? Like is, I don't think that they really ex- explored anything uh, in the character of the young man that explained why he would want to hang on to all of these things. And I mean, knowing that they could incriminate him ultimately, I, I mean, it just seemed like a really dumb decision to me. Jay, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, it was definitely dumb, and I think it was played off as such, because, you know, when he tries to tell Alex Haw, you know, that, oh, yeah, like, I have this woman's stuff, and I never got rid of it, you know, it, it it's very much played as, like, a, you know, oh, yeah, like, maybe I was going to give it back to her, but maybe not, like, it didn't, I guess, really explain, you know, like, other than, you know, perhaps his, like, fondness for her, why he kept that stuff, and, you know, as for the, uh, you know, as for, like, why keeping, like, all of it, I mean, again, you know, he, it's played off as he either wouldn't or couldn't sell that stuff but wanted alex haw's character to think that he did but it's strange too because he seems like hyper care he he, it seems like he's being hyper careful about not getting caught right because like there's the one scene where they're in the restaurant and the person that they robbed or that they broke into her apartment earlier in the movie comes in and he you know flips out basically and is like we got to go you know we got to leave she's going to see us and rat us out or whatever i don't know it just seemed a little inconsistent to me yeah, for me, I think it, it definitely is one of those things that goes relatively underexplained over the course of the film. I think one potential explanation is that, and I think that both, you know, Jay, you were kind of alluding to this as well, that he's one of these people who, I mean, he wants to be like Cobb. Like he wants to emulate what Cobb has done with, you know, at least his perceptions of what Cobb has done. And part of that is having these possessions, selling them, et cetera, or whatever. But when it comes down to it, what we ultimately know about him is that he's not Cobb. He can't like he isn't either. He doesn't try hard enough or isn't able to sell those things. And ultimately he doesn't want to. And he, like he, he feels mixed emotions and is like, it feels like 
lacks some sort of confidence in the things that he's done and it just ties into his large his, his overall personality uh of, of this character that this has happened to him and part of that is that you know he can't sell it so he holds on to that because he doesn't he doesn't want to get rid of it either you know a different person might keep them as trophies or whatever but you never get that feeling that they are trophies for for the young man, he just has them. He just has them because he's ended up with them and life happens to him and and life happens to him throughout the entire movie. And again, I think a lot of this isn't necessarily explicitly explained in the, in the movie. And I think there's just some inferences that you have to make, but that's really the only way that I can read what you're talking about, Scott. Yeah, again, just another thing that I found a little confusing. Yeah, totally. Uh, I guess the last thing we've already kind of touched on it a little bit, so we don't have to spend too much more time on it, but the, the ending itself, I mean, we've talked about the, twist on twist that happened but also uh the thing that again kind of came to my mind was you know the very very end of the movie where you have this cop figure disappearing into the crowd uh quite literally right like not just walking into a crowd and getting and becoming anonymous but literally disappearing in front of your eyes and i don't know if anyone read into it as much as i did around questioning uh reality and existence and whatnot um but guys did you have any other thoughts about the ending yeah, and I, I I don't know. That's that's an interesting point to bring up. I, I wonder if this is you know if, if there's any sort of weight to the theory that maybe this is just some sort of character that I, that he's created in his own head. The the young man has created this cop character, maybe just like to make his life more interesting, right? Because that's kind of why he's following, ostensibly why he's following people is that um, you know he he's a writer, right? And he he likes exploring people's lives to you know, in theory, write, write about them so, th so that he can write about them more effectively. And mm -hmm. yeah, may maybe this is just some character that he has constructed in his own head to make his life more interesting, make his writing more interesting. I don't know if there's really anything much to that, but uh, that ending probably does make you think about that a little bit. Yeah. And again, I, I can't tell how much of that is me writing meaning onto the ending because I've seen other Nolan movies that come out yeah. much later. Jay, any thoughts? Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in that way. Um, I, I mean, I like you know, thinking of it in that way now that you've brought it up. I mean, you know, it, it's a it's certainly like a fun brain teaser. Um, yeah, but I don't know I, if the I, movie earns that brain teaser. I mean, I don't no, know sure. And yeah, to me, I don't think it did. Uh, I mean, it didn't even occur to me. I, I think the way I thought of it was more just going back to something that was said at the beginning about, you know, picking someone out of a crowd, right? Like this was him kind of just, you know, going back into the crowd and like, I, I don't know, like getting away with it almost. Like I, I, I certainly didn't think to give it the, the credence of, you know, that, you know, oh, was it all real or not? Yeah, like to, a, you know, insofar as, you know, I did when, you know, he's, he's sitting there, uh, Jeremy, uh, you know, sitting there trying to, you know, tell this cop something that there's virtually no evidence to back up. Um, but only insofar as, you know, he's been like completely conned, not insofar, not, not, you know, to the, to the distance, I guess, of, you know, oh, like it was all in his head. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where like, is Cobb that much of a mastermind? Is the young man that much of a, a dim-witted kind of idiot? Or is the young man a dim-witted idiot and also completely <laughs> fabricated all these things in his head? Uh, I, I don't know. I, 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 the more that I think about it, I, it does feel like I'm transposing my in, like thoughts that are related to Inception onto this film. Uh, but it's definitely going to be one that I'll, I'll want to revisit when we do talk about Inception in a few weeks. All right, guys. Um, I mean, we talked about teases to other movies. We talked about Cobb having the same name. Well, I, I should say, in terms of teases to other movies, have we brought up the Batman symbol yet? No, because I was about to. So okay. we have, uh, we do have the tease to uh, Inception, like I mentioned, with with Cobb being the name of 
of the um, the burglar that takes the young man under his wing. There's, of course, the tease in terms of format to to many of his other movies with uh, the the nonlinear storytelling. But may, maybe the most explicit tease of them all, of course, being the fact that the young man's apartment door has the Batman logo on it, has the the bat symbol. And you know, Scott and I were were joking about this after we watched the following about how you know is this Chris Nolan calling his shot in nineteen in nineteen ninety seven before he even I mean maybe he has a draft script for something like Batman Begins or or his trilogy kind of mapped out in terms of a storyboard, but I mean clearly there's no way you know Warner Brothers has hired him to to uh, make a Batman trilogy, let alone a Batman movie um, at this point, and yet here he is calling his shot, guys. What did you think of that? I mean, yeah, it's pretty amazing if that was the case, right? To have the confidence to be making a $6,000 black and white movie and be like, yeah, someday I'm going to direct Batman. And, you know, it's the it, there's probably a simpler explanation. It's probably just a coincidence, right? Like, he probably really likes Batman. I mean, long before he ever directed the Batman movie, I'm sure he, he loved the Batman character. And mm -hmm. so maybe uh, that's why he decided to have the protagonist of the movie have the bat symbol on his door just because he likes Batman and ultimately that's what led him to directing the films. There's probably a simpler explanation, but it is still kind of crazy to think about. Yeah. Jay, any thoughts? Yeah. I had to go back and watch that uh, three times to make sure I wasn't like seeing things. Yeah. Sir, you know, I'll, I'll certainly go forward, you know, telling myself that he was definitely calling a shot regardless of whether or not he was. Um, I definitely like that version of the story better. Yeah, I like the version of that story uh, the best as well, but I, I am going to bring a, a sobering reality home. Uh, the fact that basically what, what they used to, because this film was on such a low budget, they were using basically the, the apartments and flats and houses of his family uh, and his friends. And I don't know if this was his exact apartment, but they were like all the places that they film that aren't, of course, on, on the streets of London are places that um you know he, he or, or like his house or his apartment and his friend's apartment so i think scott there's some credence to what you were saying around he's just a big fan of the batman he might have had a yeah. batman logo on on his door or one of his family members door or his friend's door uh, unfortunately so i don't know if he was necessarily calling this shot but i think that it probably does link together to say clearly he's a big fan of batman and it's crazy to think that the bat logo is on you know the main character's door of his first movie and seven years later or whenever he's uh he's released a batman movie all right, guys, I think that should just about do it. Uh, we will wrap things up now. What is your favorite scene or moment from following? Jay, we'll start with you. I will go with the scene where Cobb is finally uh, revealed himself as not only uh, double-crossing Bill, but also uh, double-crossing the blonde, right? Where, you know, he like, you know, he's telling her, you know, that he's going to essentially torture and then kill her the same way that she saw it being done to her. And this is happening while you know, the young man is trying to explain to the cop, like everything that's happened. And you find out that, you know, you know, like when he says, you know, like, no, there are two types of blood on this hammer. Like one of them, you know, the person that you, you hit and the other is going to match this woman. And it, you know, it, uh, as it all comes crashing down. Yeah. I'm a sucker for a good reveal. Scott, what about you? Yeah, I'll go with the uh, first scene where the two characters meet Cobb and, uh, and the young man in the coffee shop. Um, I like the way that, Cobb turns the tables on the young man, right? Before, prior to this, it seems like the young man is kind of in control, following people around. Um, it, it seems like he's the one who's kind of uh, with the power, um, but Cobb kind of, like I said, turns the table on him um, and 
shows that, uh, yeah, may maybe people actually know what's up here um, and, and puts the young man in his place really quickly. So I, I like that scene. Yeah, this is one of those films where I, I talk about it every time it comes up. I feel like it's hard to, to put your finger on one particular <laughs> moment because so much of the film does run together. I mean, yeah, there are the different timelines, but a lot of the films flow scene to scene, even if the editing isn't particularly good, it feels like there aren't necessarily, and maybe because the editing is bad, it doesn't really feel like there's as discrete moments as you'd like uh, for whatever reason. But for me, I also probably would have gone with the cafe scene to, to be different. Maybe I think uh, a fun scene is the one right after that where they're breaking into the first people's apartment and then you know the people come in and cops just like, oh, like we just put the flat, you know? The excuse that cop comes up with for being in the apartment I thought was funny and clever and they escaped to the roof, which just seems like an absurd thing to have done. Um, and then I think a little the scene lets you down a little bit because then right after that, they just climb down the- Yeah, they're just like, oh, oh here's the fires. Yeah. Uh, which I was just like, well, that, that ended, I guess. <laughs> um, but that, I'd probably choose that scene. And with that, we will wrap things up with the score for following guys. What are you going to go with, Jay? We'll start with you first. 7.3. All right, 7.3. Scott, where are not going to box myself in like I did at the beginning of our last countdown with a crazy oh. high number. And I don't, I don't think, think this you're one boxing is. yourself into a 7.7. No, no, no. I'm saying, remember uh, when we did our Marvel countdown, I definitely boxed myself in a little bit at the beginning. Um, True. Going I so mean, high on Iron Man. I will not be doing that this time. I mean, it, it was a good movie, and, you know, I think it gets a lift just by being something that Christopher Nolan did. And it's the fact that it's the last one I'm seeing of his entire uh, filmography so far. So, right. but you know, 7.3, that feels fine. I can't help but think that every other movie that we review is gonna be a hundred or a 10 then, uh, if, you, if you're putting this at a 7.3, but we'll see how things go. We'll see how things go. Scott, what score are you giving this? Yeah, well, I guess I should acknowledge that apparently there might be some human error in my uh, viewing of the movie, but um, regardless, I think that, uh, there's just some things missing from this movie. And if um, if this movie wasn't directed by Christopher Nolan, I think no one would really ever think about it again, probably. Um, so I give it a very unremarkable score of 5.5. 5.5. Yeah, I think that calling this movie unremarkable in a remarkable film director or you know, writer-director's uh, filmography is pretty fair. I will see what I think of a movie like Insomnia, which I've only seen once and I think for me, probably of the ones that I've seen is the least remarkable of his movies. We'll see how it, uh, that plays out. And of course, you know, the other <coughs> movies that we're going to watch in this countdown play out. But for me, this, I also think this is going to end up coming down on the lower end of the scale. It's a 6.3 for me. All right, guys, that will do it for part one of the Nolan countdown. Scott, Jay, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Looking forward to the rest of the series, especially looking forward to next time because somehow Scott has never seen Momentum. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it only gets better from here. So yes, well, I mean, again, I I have some less exciting memories of a couple of his films. Insomnia is one of them. I'll go out on a limb here and and tease uh, my pre-existing thoughts for our countdown of a movie like Interstellar as well, which I thought was one of uh, his his lesser movies. But we'll see if that's changed on a second watch because uh, again, another one that I haven't I've only seen once. An absolute marathon of a movie. Um, but yeah, no, it, I'm excited for the next one because people have been telling me for years that Memento is, a, is an amazing movie. And it, it, it also seems like the kind of movie that I'm going to love. And it's just one of those things where you have to shrug and be like, I don't, I don't know how I haven't seen Memento before. It just somehow I haven't. And that's going to be rectified next week when we do uh, review Memento. We will be back. Uh, this is part one. We'll be back each week with a new uh, 
Nolan movie. Like we said, next week will be Memento. But in the meantime, uh, where can people find you guys on Twitter, Scott? At Scarvy Dent. Awesome. Jay, any socials you want to plug? Jay Habib15. On Twitter or on Instagram? Where is that? Every major platform that isn't TikTok. Oh. I haven't made my way there yet. Do we we need to start asking people where can people find you on TikTok? Oh, I can't wait to do that. I'll feel so Gen Z. No, 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 not not there yet. (laughs) All right. And that can be found at SShelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find uh, our podcast. That's at Media Plug Pods. That is the podcast, uh, the podcast Twitter for our main podcast, Some Like It Scott's, but uh, some like it, Scott, but we can all, we'll also be tweeting out the this series from that podcast or from that Twitter page. Jeez, man, I'm tripping over myself. If you check out uh, our podcast Patreon page, though, we'd really love that. That's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. There are a bunch of different reward tiers over there. And even if you only contribute at the $1 level, that would uh, really, really uh, make us happy. I appreciate that very much. Uh, that's, again, www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you can't donate to us on Patreon, we totally understand, and that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and wherever else you listen to your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you rated us and reviewed us over there as well as subscribe to Jared. I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to our brand new mini series, The Nolan Countdown. We'll be back next week with what will be a revisit for two of us, like we've already alluded to, and a first time watch for me uh, of the movie that made Christopher Nolan famous. I think it's fair to say Memento is what put Christopher Nolan on the map. Until then, don't forget to check out all of our other podcasts in the Some Like It Scott feed, including our latest episode, of Some Like It's Got, as well as Champ's Lunch, for Scott Harvey and Jay Habib. 